Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Amy Fitzpatrick, Senior Advisor for Disability at Speech Pathology Australia. Today, we're going to be talking about neurodiversity. You may have noticed that there is a new way of understanding autism led by the autistic community. This is often known as the neurodiversity movement, and it has encouraged the general community and clinicians to rethink their interventions to ensure they are ethical and in line with the key idea that autism is not a disorder or needing to be cured. This leads to a lot of questions for speech pathologists about how this might change their practice and Speech Pathology Australia is committed to taking this journey with members, starting with committing to neurodiversity affirming practices in position statements and guidelines, as well as prioritising this area for professional education in 2023. Today I'm going to be speaking with two guests, Kath Fernando and Melissa Maddox. Melissa, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Mel. Um, I'm an autistic speech pathologist. Um, I work with pretty much all autistic clients, um, mostly kids in private practice. Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And then we have Kath Fernando. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Kath. Um, So I'm just really glad to be here. This is a really huge conversation. I think the neurodiversity movement is going to be an absolute game changer for our practice. Um, I'm a speech pathologist who has spent the last few months engaging in really deep reflective practice. I've been engaging um, as much as possible with neurodivergent, um, autistic, ADHD, uh, allied health clinicians. Um, I didn't even know there were autistic speech pathologists before I started this journey. and I've really come around full circle Um, And as a result, I've shifted my entire framework for viewing neurodivergency um, in my practice. And as a result, completely changed just about everything about the way I practice with this population. And I'm just here to talk about that journey and to help others who are going to be going through this journey now as a result of our new uh, guidelines. Thanks, Kath. Um, And this is also a topic dear to my heart. I identify as neurodivergent with ADHD and I'm supporting um, close family members going through the diagnostic process as well. So very keen to talk about it and also obviously a speech pathologist. So let's have a look at what the neurodiversity movement is and what it means. So Melissa, can we start first with um, the language that's used and what your preference is Um, for language used to talk about autism? So I use identity first language. So I'm autistic. um, And that's kind of the preference for a lot of the autistic community. Um, For me, I like 
the identity first language because like being autistic is like part of my identity like Mm -hmm. if you take away the autism well I don't really know what you're left with (laughs) so that's why I like identity first language yeah um and yeah it's the preference for a lot of the autistic community like all my friends are autistic and we all prefer identity first language okay great thank you and just to note in the speech pathology australia position statement and um guideline that have come out recently around working with autistic people in their families we followed the autism crc uh, research that has suggested either identity first autistic or using on the spectrum or on on autistic on the autism spectrum um which is the preference that has been suggested by the community all right, so Kath, could you tell us a little bit about the social model of disability and how that relates to the neurodiversity movement? Yeah, look, this was another thing that was actually new to me. Um, I know when I was at uni, we really had the model of the ICF really drilled into it. So there was barely an essay you could submit that didn't cite the ICF model of disability. And I think what that, I mean, it's not a bad model, it's not like a medical model, but it does start with disease disorder at the top of the uh, the tree, if you like, of inter- of how we view a person and, and the entire environment that they live in. However, the social model of disability is at the heart of the neurodiversity movement um, and it's essentially that there is no disability without the attitudes, environment and social barriers that result from our culture and society. Um, Disability itself is experienced differently by each person. It's not the person that is the problem. It's the environment that is the problem. So by enabling um, people to live in an environment where they can be their best selves, you are therefore reducing disability. And I really like that. I've adopted that in my practice for for all of my clients and it, um, it makes a lot more sense to me intuitively. Mm, And I think that ties really nicely into the concept of ableism, which is discrimination based on a person's disability. And that's something that neurodivergent people may face a lot, the burden of disability or communication being on them. Um, So not taking responsibility as a communication partner to learn about uh, someone who's neurodivergent and what helps them communicate or feel safe. So that's something that's really, I think, tied in with this model, um, learning about your own um, responsibility at, in being a good communication partner and a good member of society in terms of helping people with a disability feel like they're contributing members to that society. Um, and I definitely... Yeah, and even um, not to see disability as such, like autism, ADHD, for example, the movement is saying these are not disorders mm. this is minimized the the disability is experienced by the person based on their life experience but it's not a disorder so neurodivergent brains are wired differently there's a lot more gray matter in some areas less gray matter in others it's something that can be seen on a brain scan <laughs> um, and these are natural variations that exist in the world there are different brains they're not wrong they're not bad, they're not broken, they are not to be pitied. Um, they are valid and they hugely contribute to our society and, um, yeah. That's right. And that's and, the new way we really need to look at it. And how do you feel about the label disability, Melissa? Is that something you identify with? 
Um, I think I do identify with it a bit just because, like, I don't really know how to explain it. There is, like, I do have a lot of difficulty, like, navigating, mm-hmm. like, the environment, what whatever environment I'm in when I'm not, like, at home just mm-hmm. because the world is really set up for a neurotypical person yeah. and I'm not neurotypical. So yeah. that's kind of why I, like, asso- like yeah, associate with, like, the um, – disability disabled label mm-hmm. um but again when I'm a lot of my friends are neurodiverse so mm-hmm. when we're like all together we're not necessarily like disabled it's more when mm-hmm. we go to other environments and it's not set up for us if oh, that makes so, sense yeah so commun- communication access is not really available to you or sensory needs are not met yeah. things like that yeah. Yeah. What would make it feel safe for you in those environments? Um, I think just I'm pretty good at like accommodating for my sensory needs. So like when I go out, I always have like my headphones or something with me because I'm very sensory avoidant. And like a lot of the time that's fine, but sometimes I might be in an environment where that's not necessarily as like accepted that I have those tools with me so I think kind of just having spaces in general where it is okay to have like these sensory tools and like other things so that I can like function in these environments yeah I think that's really important all right thanks very much for that so we might move on now um I just wanted to give a few basic concepts and I just wanted to check in with both of you um, to make sure that this is um, what you both agree with. So we're basically saying the bottom line is that autism is a neurological difference and not a disorder. Um, And as Mel said, the disability experienced is a personal matter. So what the neurodiversity movement is saying is autistic people are going to trust their natural instincts, behave authentically and promote their own strengths and that will translate into our speech pathology practice as well, Um, and that you should always refer to your client when talking about identity first language or how they would prefer to be um, called. So I just wanted to check if that is something that um, resonates with both of you. Well, definitely there was a few things, a few principles of the movement that I had to get my head around, and at first I pushed against because I didn't understand them intuitively or accept them. So, for example, the double empathy problem. So Melissa talking about her closest friends being neurodivergent people. Um, The double empathy theory is very fundamental to the movement as well. Um, And that is that natural friendships and an intuitive way of communication happens between neurodivergent people. Um, They have a radar. I've been reading a lot on social media. They have a radar, (laughs) a way of finding each other. Mm. Um, I know at the moment a lot of um, women are coming out as having ADHD and saying well all of their friends are as well that they've naturally found people who are the same and I found this really fascinating um, that this intuitive way of communicating is completely valid so for example um, and you can (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong but sort of even sometimes like things like not making eye contact and stimming like fidgeting or humming or whatever uh, when they're together 
um, talking about favourite things, not engaging in small talk. I actually asked people on social media to give me a list, you know, <laughs> how do you communicate, you know, speaking plainly, not sugarcoating information, just saying something that might appear uh, sort of blunt um, to neurotypical people. Um, and when neurodivergent people are together, like sometimes whole families are sort of throwing ideas back and forth rather than talking in a linear conversation. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, talking about favourite things and then talking sort of, it seems like at each other, but it's a really comfortable way of communicating. It's different and and it's valid. Um, and also talking, talking about self to show empathy rather than just um, I think neurotypical people want to, don't make this about you. Um, <laughs> neurodivergent people talk about themselves to show empathy. Oh, I understand that experience because this happened to me. Um, I don't know, Melissa, does that <laughs> resonate yeah. with you? Yeah. And like, as you were saying, like with the differences and like the conversation, like my friends and I will just like dump information at each other <laughs> and mm-hmm. it may not necessarily seem like a cohesive conversation because we'll be like at point one and then we'll jump to like, point six or whatever and then we'll come back to two and like people will just not be able to keep up but then my friend and I were like yeah this is how we communicate um yeah yeah. and I think that's so critical to understand the double empathy theory I mean it's it's called double empathy because it it used to be thought that autistic people lacked empathy but in Mm. fact they experience it more strongly your autistic kids are the one that's sad that the teddy bear is not you know, in bed without them, or <laughs> you know, that the last yeah. carrot hasn't been eaten. That's that, you know, really big feelings. And um, in fact, that they have empathy and a really valid way of communicating with each other. Um, so we have to think really carefully about intervention to make someone appear more neurotypical. And mm-hmm. that is not going to form authentic, valid friendships. Yeah. Friendships are based on unmasking. Yeah, that's right. And I think that part of receiving that diagnosis, for example, as an adult, you know, is so validating because you've tried to change the way you are with people for so long um, and having that permission to just be yourself and speak the way you want to speak um, is just so liberating. I think um, for me personally, um, you still need to um, exist in the world, um, but knowing that you're not just deficient in certain ways you're just different um has been a really good thing for me to learn and um translate into my other relationships so I don't know if that helped you Mel um when you figured out what was going on in your brain yeah it did it was really like it kind of just explained everything yeah. and I'm like I'm not just weird like <laughs> well I am well I mean weird. I am weird but like <laughs> there's a reason I'm weird yeah um, yeah yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's so nice when you find the people that you can just be weird with um, and feel okay, which is really nice. And I think all of us have those people in our family um, that we can relate to, um, mm. you know, in that context. And I think as well, just one of the hot topics um, is masking and and where that fits in. And I think, Mel, we talked a little bit about whether you mask at all and how that fits in. Um, did you want to speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I I still mask a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just because I'm still learning how to 
not mask and like how to be okay with not masking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really difficult one because like you don't want to be seen as different mm. because that'll get you like singled out. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, masking, it's had it's had a really big impact on my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I, when I'm working with clients, I won't encourage masking. Mm-hmm. I don't do anything that kind of promotes masking or anything because I've seen like the negative consequences it can have. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, it does. Um, can you give me your um, idea of what masking is as a concept? So for me, I I don't do it as much now, but um, before I got my diagnosis and even like afterwards, I would kind of, my personality would kind of match whoever I was with. Mm-hmm. So I'd pretty much take on their personality mm-hmm. um, in like social situations and I would just, yeah, pretty much just copy what they were doing mm-hmm. um, so that I didn't appear different and mm-hmm. because I didn't really know how to navigate like the social environment. So I'd just copy what everyone else was doing yeah. um, and I wouldn't let myself like take breaks if I needed them or I just stay in those situations because I thought I had to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that's answers. yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, and I think one of the tensions um, and one of the reasons that we're talking today is because learning about the neurodiversity movement and how that might impact the way we do speech pathology practice is a big shift. And so, um, how do we change what we're doing? Um, how do we teach social skills? Do we teach social skills? Do we do any of the um, traditional therapies that we have been doing um so this is not a small thing so I just wanted to open up that conversation now that um, we've discussed some of the concepts and talk about what what this might mean Um, and you've touched a little bit on that Mel that you don't teach masking in your sessions Um, what do sessions look like in your clinic so it's it's varies a lot depending on the client but like what I like to do um because a lot of their goals are always around like social communication Mm -hmm. um so what I do is I kind of like look at the differences between like neurotypical Mm -hmm. communication and like autistic communication um and kind of show examples of both and I use um the connect kids program by awesome speech does this really well that they go through like the different aspects and how the differences and like the similarities and um how you can kind of navigate the situations while still like staying true to yourself Mm -hmm. um so that's what I use a lot okay that sounds great and Kath I know you've worked a lot on how you're going to um change your intervention and you've come up with a, a model around that would you like to take us through that and how you've implemented that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, masking was not something that I understood. Um, I thought we all mask a bit, you know, if you have to go to a party and on the mood. <laughs> but what I didn't understand is that at some point after a couple of wines, you're able to 
dance the same dance as everybody else. There's a conversation, <laughs> you're following it. And an autistic person, there's, there's a different tune playing, right? <laughs> so it's sort of like I'm running a second filter in my mind is what I understand. It's like I've got to keep my hands still. I've got to make eye contact. I've got to say the right thing at the right time. That's not an enjoyable social experience. That is um, a, a very stressful experience and it would um, cost a lot of spoons. So, I mean, I think in speech pathology, our tenant, our our code of ethics first of all and fundamentally is benevolence do no harm so we have to look at practices that are potentially doing harm and I'm going to be risk averse so I've changed my practice to do what I feel is best for these clients with the knowledge I have and one of those things is to take the onus the burden off neurodivergent people to fix all of the miscommunications that might occur why are we only asking autistic people who perhaps have more trouble and a lot more sensory going on to be the one who has to do all of the changing, who has to change all their behaviours for the world. Why does all the other people have no part in it? (laughs) Um, So I suppose um, the first thing I do, considering that speech pathology is sometimes the very first or very second professionals a child with a new diagnosis of autism is going to see. So we are the very fundamental to this movement because we're shaping the way that that family views autism from the start. So not being across the neurodiversity movement um, is you know, risk of doing harm. So I first of all will ask, you know, if we'll get a case history and all of that, <laughs> um, and I will ask, you know, do you know about the neurodiversity movement, um, you know, where we think differently and more positively about autism, give them a bit of a uh, check and because if people yes are across the neurodiversity movement um they'll most likely be wanting an autistic speech pathologist or professional because in the networks on social media they're looking for them i need an autistic <laughs> speech pathologist so we have to secondly we're going to employ more autistic speech pathologists <laughs> but at the very least they want they will be looking for clinicians who are across this um, if they don't know anything about it, I feel like it's our job to educate them. I've got a little set of slides that I use with some fantastic cartoons done by um, Neuro Wild, who is an autistic speech pathologist. Her cartoons are available on Teachers Pay Teachers. And um, she has made these beautiful diagrams and um, drawings and cartoons to help families and especially for kids to understand some of these concepts, masking, double empathy theory, so on. And even she's written up a list of things clinicians should know. It's worth having a look at her stuff. Then after the sort of education part, um, look at how to manage the internal world. So the autism is, like I say, it's a different um, concentration of neurons. So there's a lot of sensory differences and energy differences and using um, materials that are made by autistic people. So Autism Level Up has a whole lot of stuff about how its feelings are not just in the in the mind the way they are neurotypical people that's sort of in a whole body experience. So all those words are happy and sad. They might not be meaningful um, with autistic people. So Autism Level Up is designed by autistic people to look at whole body feelings. Um, so and also there's a brain map story I do from Neuroclastic website where kids can map out their own brains, understanding things like 
you know, sight, touch, sound and draw a big line towards, you know, the map for sound if they really are sensitive to sounds or do a thinner line to interoception once you explain that, you know, not able to sort of know what's going on in their body. And that's another thing to consider. We're always trying to teach people to tell us their feelings. <laughs> interoception different. You don't know what you're feeling if you've got an interoception um, difference, right? Um, and then just, I guess, teaching advocacy. So advocates, like I said, I've got presentation I'm happy to do to their school teacher or talk to their friends and family um, and allowing that kid to gradually identify positively and then be able to manage everybody's expectations around them. It's a big job they're going to have to do in this ableist world. Um, I found it. I found it like really interesting. I don't really know how to explain it. But when I first started working, I didn't disclose that I was autistic straight away. And Mm -hmm. then when I did start disclosing and like my clients found out I was autistic, I kind of saw the change in how they behaved. It was like their mask came off when they were like, when they oh. found out I was autistic, they kind of, they're like, maybe it's okay for me to be me. Um, yes, and I just found that really interesting. Mm. Yeah, look, so far this has not been going down badly, let me say. If the proof of the pudding is in the eating, I haven't yet had a family go, oh, that's not the way I want my child. I want my child to be <laughs> broken and pitied. Um, I did want to just add friendships, I think, Um autistic people can get confused about friendships if you're teaching them how to have a conversation and say your part and have a two-way conversation because that builds relationships and friendships that does not build friendships for autistic yeah. people they and then need if to you're be teaching authentic. them that what if it's different what if it's this isn't what I learned the conversation isn't going how I learned in like speech what do I do yeah, we didn't finish this script. <laughs> yeah, it's gone in a new direction. But but of course, but about the, autistic kids need to make friends and be exposed mm-hmm. to other autistic kids, where they will yeah. naturally communicate, um, and with a positive view of themselves, um, you know, then they're in a, a safe environment. Um, and just, I mean, they're not all going to get along. But I mean, how many neurotypical people all get along you know you've got to find your tribe and I mean I went to a um, seminar with um, Erna Allant um, was speaking at um, a Gosky conference in Hobart earlier and she was talking about authentic friendship and that truly you know best friend level friendship can't be taught mm-hmm. it's just up to I mean I've actually got a quote here that she used um, I haven't sourced it properly sorry it says it's a voluntary and reciprocal relationship in which two students exhibit mutual attachment to one another, frequent proximity and companionship and evidence of enjoyment or affection. I think what she's saying is true friendship can only be gained through people being authentic and unmasked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen in um, working in complex disability area um, with adults for a lot of this year, I've seen friendships that are completely nonverbal, people's preference to sit together the nuance of looking at each other or smiling or nudging and that you know the parents are like you know but they're not having a conversation that's not a friendship well actually it is a friendship your daughter has got a friendship some really good friends there they're never they're non-verbal you know um friendship does not require conversation wow that's really interesting and I think the next thing to say is you know this is going to cause a lot of um, questioning and perhaps even anxiety for speech 
pathologist, you know. It's huge. <laughs> this is huge. This is a game changer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is perhaps is it enough to just start with an openness to learn more um, and to know, okay, maybe I have to think about where I can go to learn more and think about what I'm doing and if it's um, thinking about autism as a disorder or now changing my mindset to think about it as a difference um, and then kind of build up from there because I think um, this is a huge paradigm shift and we need to to start looking at what we're doing um, gradually. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, if I can. Um, so one of the things I didn't understand when I was first working with autistic people is what even is autism because we've got this DSM definition. Mm. And if you read the DSM, it says, you know, deficits in this, abnormal in that, restrictive yeah. this and that. You know, the, the language is a neurotypical perspective looking at visible differences between autism and neurotypical and yeah. calling them out as problematic. That's yeah. what it is. And that people are like, you can't, that's the DSM, you know. But when I think about someone, and I don't mean to be tokenistic about this, but I do like to use celebrities that everybody knows. So like um, <laughs> Greta Thunberg, okay, is autistic. She stopped talking when she um, found out about climate change and she started a whole movement. I mean, I don't see deficits in anything, abnormal in anything. I just see an amazing young woman, you know, that I really admire. And I, I think the DSM doesn't reflect anything about the lived or felt experience of an autistic person. And don't forget that hysteria was once in the DSM manual as was being um, LGBTI plus. <laughs> so we can really throw that out um, in this movement because the autistic community, and like we say identity, they don't say ASD, we don't say autism spectrum disorder, they just say autism, autistic person. Um and you should ask your client, do you mind me calling you autistic person or person with autism? Just just check what they're used to as well, what they're comfortable with. Yeah, do you have any thoughts about that, Mel? It's um, you know, something that you... I really don't like the DSM. There's like <laughs> the DSM like <laughs> definition of autism. There's like nothing positive in that. And it's really like it's really like biased towards like the male presentation of autism as well yeah. mm -hmm. um so and that and I think that's why a lot of girls are getting missed because yeah. it's very biased it's very deficit based it's very there's just nothing good about it really um, yeah I think that the thing that's really I mean it's taken me a few months to go from thinking that I was kind of doing neurodiverse affirming practice because I would have a questionnaire that had a sad face if you weren't good at like making eye contact, you know, in a social skills questionnaire. And I'd say, just ignore that. Don't worry about that. And I'd do the questionnaire anyway. So I've gone from thinking I was neurodiversity affirming by just at changing a few tweaks to really deeply trying to understand these concepts by talking to autistic speech pathologists on social media. I mean, I, you know, I'm just on there on Facebook or um, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff on TikTok um, and, you know, talking to real people in the movement, very little of which is on the internet. You know, you've got to mm -hmm. have those conversations and there are autistic um, speech pathologists that do um, 
trainings and things, but really you just got to, to listen. It's just all about sort of standpoint. It's all about, well, this is how I've understood life and now I've got to think about it differently. And it takes a really long time and a lot of critical reflection and open-mindedness. Mm. I mean, even to change your responses, so if an autistic person sounds blunt, maybe you could say, well, I don't have to get offended by that rather than saying, no, you need to be a little bit softer and, be mm. you know, how much can we do to accept autistic behaviours and communication styles um, and how much can the world do to, do to do that instead of having to put the onus and the burden on these people to change mm. themselves? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's something I, like, I've never really, like, understood. Like, why are we putting the pressure on, like, autistic people to kind of carry the conversation in a way, I guess, um, mm. to make all the accommodations. Why isn't it like, why can't the neurotypical people make the, the accommodations? They, yeah. they, it seems like they want to like, they want to be seen as like, yes, we're helping. We're teaching them how to have a conversation. Well, autistic people, we can have a conversation. It just yeah. doesn't yeah. necessarily match um, what a neurotypical thinks a conversation looks like okay yes, but it's equally valid yeah so you think there's a place for perhaps education and training around um neurodivergent ways of communicating or neurodiverse ways of communicating as well Mel yeah I think I think so okay that could be you know another really good avenue for speech pathologists to become involved in as well I think um in you know obviously run by autistic people and with autistic people. Um, I think that could be really um, empowering. I think we've got, there's a lot of autistic people out there in the world being speech pathologists and being everything, every manner of other um, area of work that exists, mm. um, hiding in plain sight. The first thing you do is just check if you've got, you might be working with autistic people without even realising it. Make your workplace a safe place. Yep. For someone to come out, so like you know, how can you work? We best help you to work. Um, it must be really hard to get into speech pathology. My previous career background was in engineering, and I have to say, although it was still really ableist, it was probably an easier gig for people who precise language is really important and being valued for your brain and your skill and the work you produce. Um, rather than the way you communicate, I think it might have been a slightly easier environment. Mm. I imagine being a speech pathologist um, with autism must be really hard to get into, Mel, in the first place. Yeah, it it is pretty challenging. It was pretty challenging, like, to start with. And because, like, I only got my diagnosis, I think it was sec my second year of uni, um, something like that. It was while I was at uni, I got my diagnosis. And um, I think it was like in my third year, I was like on placement and my placement coordinator told me I wasn't fit to practice because I'm autistic. So then I was kind of <gasps> like, well, what? why am I doing this then? Because, wow. yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> hmm. And then I kind of, I finished my degree and I kind of took that into like, my first job, I guess. Um, and even though I work in a space that's very, like pretty much everyone I work with is neurodivergent, 
but I kind of still took that with me. I'm like, well, I can't be a speech pathologist because I'm autistic. And then I kind of like very much threw myself into work, probably like way too much to kind of prove that I can be a speech pathologist and be autistic, mm. um, even though I was in a space that was safe to me, for me to be autistic. Wow. I'm so sorry you went through that, Melissa. That is that's exactly I think people don't know what autism really looks like in yeah. real life with um need to and because people are hiding, mm. we can't ask them. We don't know yeah. who they are. Like I reckon people yeah. would be really shocked if they found out who was autistic among their colleagues or friends, yeah. you know? <laughs> and then I went uh, when I went to like the advocacy service at uni they, the ad, the lady was like but you're nothing like my seven-year-old autistic son I'm like great I don't want to be like your seven-year-old autistic son like, <laughs> every every autistic brain is different yeah yeah <laughs> exactly was there anything thinking back now that would have made university a safer place um in a physical setup kind of way or communication way as an autistic person um, or adjustment that would have been made? I think just being open to, like, what I was asking for in terms of, like, accommodations Mm -hmm. because I wasn't really asking for, like, a lot. I just wanted, um, like, a less intensive placement option. So it wasn't, like, five days a week. I wanted maybe, like, three days a week. Um, And, like, in terms of, like, classes and that, my classes were pretty small, so that was good. Yeah. Um, and I think that helped me a lot because they were smaller. So I had more, I felt more comfortable in like smaller groups than like bigger yeah. groups. Um, but, yeah, I think just being open to like accommodating my needs. Mm, yeah. Okay, that's really- yeah. I think being the safe person in the workplace to say, you mm. know what, if there is anyone neurodivergent, um, or if you are the neurodivergent person, feeling safe to speak out, mm. um, because at some point, everybody has to speak out and be understood. Um, yeah, and look, this movement—it's really um, as a movement, it's really no different to the LGBTI plus movement um you know it's people hiding what who they really are it's people needing to come out and be authentic um and we just have the more people on board the more this is going to work I just wanted to go back to um you know knowing how to select interventions and treatments and I guess I wanted to touch on that deficit based model of the DSM-5 and just flag the national assessment guidelines um, produced by the Autism CRC and how one of the recommendations is to use a strengths-based approach to writing reports and um, doing assessments. So I just wanted to um, use that as an example of some training and some resources that you could look at um, for building a strengths-based profile of an autistic person and assessment, and then also touch on the draft national guideline for supporting children and autistic families, which does have a neurodiversity-affirming recommendation in it. Um, Those guidelines are likely to be endorsed by the NHMRC in November, um, and they will be asking 
uh, clinicians and therapists who support families to use a neurodiversity affirming approach. So I think that this space will be changing quite quickly. Um, and I think the point you made about how we interact with assessments and the DSM, you know, is really important to consider. So I think that this is a very much what this space kind of area um, and the association's going to be doing a lot of um, professional education and resource generation around this. So um, I think it's really important that we start these conversations. I'm really excited to kind of see some of the resources that come out because like there's already like autism level up they have mm. great resources as Kath mentioned mm. and then like awesome training has some really good resources as well and both of them both of those um they they're made by like autistic people mm. so and I'm really excited to see what else comes out to yeah, like so that I can use some different things and yeah yeah, and you're right, Amy, about, I mean, I feel like I've changed my practice. It feels right. My clients are much happier. Um, but when I write the report for the NDIS, mm-hmm. I just go straight back to deficit-based language because that's what they expect and that's, that's what's going to get funding. Want. And I yeah. feel, it feels so, the more I get into this, the worse it feels even It feels so mean things. writing like the reports for NDIS and I'm like, I feel so mean, oh. I don't want to write this. Yeah, um, because people with autism still need support mm-hmm. um, from, you know, there's a lot to navigate, mm-hmm. not only the attitudes and, um, but yeah, I, I mean, but it's just that, that language where it's going to take a long time. Well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to also touch on the, crossover between um, people with an intellectual disability and how that might impact um, our intervention and, you know, the concept of neurodiversity. Kath, do you have anything that you wanted to add around that? Yeah, look, I think some of the things that um, have happened so since I've been on social media asking questions and um, asking questions and getting told sometimes in uncertain terms what I've got wrong and <laughs> it's ended up having sort of people contact me personally and had chats with other <laughs> speech pathologists um, who are just trying to explore this space as well. Um, so some people are saying that the neurodiversity movement might be leaving behind, you know, people, it's all very well to talk about, um, you know, Grace Tame and Greta Thunberg and Hannah Gatsby and um, so on, but what about kids who, you know, we're going to need supports their whole life day to day. But I feel like, you know, autism is one thing. There's not an Asperger's syndrome for these people and a autism for these people. And I actually feel like autistic people are um, leading the way with intervention across the board um, in the early intervention space. I know there's an autistic pathologist, Rachel Dorsey, doing a lot of work around goal setting and so on. But just interventions in general, um, being very naturalistic based and um, I think the AAC space is really good at this. Mm-hmm. It's all about um, being natural, modelling in a meaningful way in the moment, not making the child do anything but just mm-hmm. modelling until they get that. Mm-hmm. That's like use, like, done well. I like to use, like, clients' interests and, like, what do you want to do today? Like, 
to kind of set the frame frame for what we're going to be working on. Um, like I have a client who's obsessed with dinosaurs. So we talk about dinosaurs. We use dinosaurs. We draw pictures of dinosaurs. We do whatever we want with dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. because and I you find- can do phonics with dinosaurs, right? Exactly. You make it fun. Like this dinosaurs, you're making the letter, p- you know. Yeah. Um- <laughs> and if you, if you use their interests and like what they want to do, they're going to be more likely to engage with you. Mm. Yeah, making it interesting so you don't have to make a child do something and, you know, withhold a reward until that has been done. You've got to just make it in the moment natural fun. They've got to be having a smile on their face, you know. It's got to be done in the right way and I think there are autistic people leading the way in, um, for this population as well. Mm. All right. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and insights with me. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up on this hot topic? I think don't feel bad. Don't feel yeah. angry with yourself if your practice has been ableist. Everyone's was. Mm. Um, it's not about guilt. It's not about making people feel like I'm doing the wrong thing. Have I done harm? It's just about learning and listening and get doing better than we did before. It's a new space and like you don't know what you don't know. So you can't Yeah. Yeah. You can't be so you can't be hard on yourself if you don't know. Exactly. And something that I've noticed about speech pathologists in this role, despite recent media misquoting, is that speech pathologists are the most genuine um professionals in, you know, trying to do the right thing, trying to learn more, trying to respect clients advocate for them, do anything for them. So the amount of queries I've had alone on this and finding out more, you know, we really will go to the ends of the earth for our clients to try and um, use evidence-based practice. So I think that as the evidence comes out in this space, um, speech pathologists will be the first to jump on board. So I don't really have any concerns, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, We just need to put the information out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me and make sure you tune in for next week's Speak Up Conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.